Hey everybody, it is episode 98 of the Running Rogue podcast. Chris and Steve coming at you from Austin, Texas. How are you doing today, Steve? Fantastic. All right. So today we are going to be talking about all things New York City Marathon. Primarily for this episode, focusing on marathon planning and strategy for New York. For those racing New York, we're going to help break down how to think about attacking this course. So we're going to be covering that. Also give you a little bit of New York marathon history. And at the end, give you a preview of what's to come from us covering New York. As we mentioned, we will be there with press passes, at least for the Friday press conferences. And so we're going to be getting some real live in-person coverage for you from New York. So we'll give you all the breakdown on what you can expect from us next week with that. Now, as we jump into intro topics, Steve, we've got some interesting discussions, I think, to have. And you and I haven't yet debated these things. And so I'm kind of curious where we end up on on some of the things that we've seen in the running news recently. The first, which we'll talk about, is what may seem like a small deal, perhaps, if you're seeing this on the surface, because I think the PR folks are downplaying a little bit about what's going on with Galen Rupp, but Galen Rupp just had a major surgery performed post his race in Chicago to basically address an issue he's had since birth of basically having this bump on his heel, which is a genetic condition called Haglund's deformity, basically kind of a bony bump on the back of your heel that can cause fraying in the Achilles tendon because the tendon rubs on that bump and Rupp's been dealing with it, has had some Achilles soreness, apparently had some minor tears in his Achilles because of these deformities. And so he's having, or just had, I believe the surgery to get it fixed quote unquote permanently and has said he's out of, out of a spring marathon. He's going to focus on rehabbing, the injury and then coming back. So he'll be ready to go for the, hopefully the fall of next year of 2019. So you and I have had some experience with people who've had this surgery, Steve, and it seems like they're downplaying a little bit from the Nike sort of PR camp standpoint, but this is a big deal and could potentially have a long-term impact on Rupp and his ability to come back to full strength. So What do you think, what do you make of this? Well, first of all, I agree with you, Chris. This injury is, well, this quote unquote injury, which is basically when you run high mileage, hard quality, and you keep doing it at the level that Galen Rupp does, which is basically equal to the best in the world um, with a genetic, you know, a genetic or a genetic condition. um, Eventually Galen was going to need to get this worked on. Um, what's weird to me is why it's taken so long and why it didn't happen after the 2012 Olympics or after the 2016 Olympics. And maybe there just wasn't highs on the ground or who knows exactly what it was, or maybe he was in, in, in a bit of a hurry, or maybe Alberta was in a bit of a hurry, but regardless, Chris, once this injury, as you and I both know, once this injury starts to play up. It, it, or it starts to get aggravated, it is definitely going and get a cut because you're never going to run the same again. 
The problem is, as you and I both know as well, once you get cut, you may never run again the same. So, you know, that's the challenge, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, because basically what they're doing with this surgery is they're detaching the Achilles tendon, going in, shaving off that bump, and then reattaching the Achilles tendon. The Achilles tendon, as we all know, is a major factor, major player in our biomechanics. And to have it basically detached from the bone and then reattached requires rehab. That's not quite Achilles tendon tear level rehab, but it's significant rehab. I mean, he's going to be, I believe they said he's going to be in a cast for for a, a good chunk of time. And then he's got, you know, He's got a road back after that to do physical therapy, get his foot working normally. So this is a this is a big deal. And you know, we know athletes who've had this condition and then surgery that really have never come back the same way or haven't come back full strength from it. Now, of course, we know Rupp has the best available medical care, I'm sure. Nike's got him set up with the best available medical care. I'm sure he's gonna have the best available physical therapist. There's a lot going in his favor, but it's going to be three months before he even considers running again, coming back from this injury. And we'll certainly have to completely start from scratch, rebuilding everything. And that's, you know, and that has an impact. I mean, one of his strengths as an athlete to this point has been relative consistency. You know, since he was plucked from a soccer field in high school, I mean, he's basically trained pretty much continuously since then. And that consistency has served him well. And so now to have this kind of a gap, and obviously you have to come back from the injury and the surgery itself, but then you also have to kind of rebuild the other elements that start to kind of weaken or soften or lose their rhythm or have trouble coming back, you know, in parallel with this. So there's a lot of moving parts here, and obviously he'll have the best available care to get there. But it's a this is a non-trivial event for Rupp, and we certainly hope he can come back strongly from it. But there are some question marks there. Now, one thing, Steve, that we did learn, and maybe this is all PR from the doctor himself, but the doctor has a quote that you know I think you said bumped up Rupp in your eyes a little bit. He said, he's pretty amazing. I've treated almost 100 Olympians he definitely has the highest pain threshold of anybody I've treated. And basically the surgeon was wowed by what he was able to do with the inflammation and small tears that he already had in his Achilles tendon. But under his, and his recommendation was, look, if you don't, if you keep running on it the way it is, that Achilles tendon is going to tear completely, in which case you'd have a much more difficult recovery process. But either way, it's going to be a tough road. So what does this say for you about Rupp's, mental fortitude his pain tolerance well first of all let me say the most important thing i learned is that now i know why his prep going into chicago was as up and down as it was and i can i really feel for alberto in the sense that both of his two-star protégés um were in similar situations one with a bone stress injury which is just it's just game over once that happens. You know, you just have to stop and rebuild and get started again. There's no workaround. And it seems like in Galen's case, 
this might have even been worse than a bone stress injury because once that Achilles starts to get fucked up the way it did, it is it is impossible to do the work that needs to be done. So I guess the first thing I'm saying is I, Galen went up in my estimation immediately with the fact that he was dealing with this kind of an issue never and never made a comment about it, Chris. And I think that's the most important thing. Like I've given Mr. Galen, Galen Guppy a lot of shit for – being set up and lined out and everything's dialed in for him and everything's written as a, as a specific, like as a, as a, as a specific protocol and everything goes to form. But here you have a world-class athlete going into one of the biggest races of his career, one in which he was defending again. Another thing that a lot of our listeners who are not competitive athletes might not really get the nuance of is that Galen was defending his record at that race, which is, definitely on Galen's mind in more ways than anybody else knows if you haven't ever defended a title. So, and then he had his own old training partner there to play and we didn't hear one peep about this injury, except that he couldn't run the prep race that he had in mind or he didn't, or he adjusted for it or, or that it was less than what they expected. And the first thing is, is that that camp and the way they managed that, um, I, I just have to say that Galen bumped up in my mind as being, instead of being a prima donna, as a little bit more of a workman. Um, secondarily, this this doctor, this cut doc, I mean, he's surgeon. I like to call him cut docs. He's absolutely the best in the world. He's world renowned. The best anybody with, if you have a, if you have a, if you're a millionaire or more, this is the guy you have cut on you if you get cut on almost any body part. And he's especially known for his Achilles tendon work. Because the kind of work that has to be done there, as you already alluded to, Chris, is serious. But Sexena is the doctor everybody in the world wants for surgery, especially cut surgery on muscular tendon and muscular and tendon work. And for him to say that he's seen a hundred, I mean, that's probably downplaying the level of of respect that Sexena had for um, Rupp. So again. I still worry a little bit about – I still am concerned about his lack of ability to respond to, – to galvanize the American listening public. I think even Jordan has the ability to get us excited more than Galen does, and that's scary when we go into this crucial, critical sort of running boom I think we're kind of in right now. We need some rock star runners, and Galen's not it. But to, but this information makes me feel a little bit more that at least in my heart, I see him as a rock star runner. Um, and of course, his his record goes to prove that. So that's what I'm saying. And uh, I'll just make a little shout out because it's the last time I'll shout out to Greg Mackin because we'll never talk about Galen again if this doesn't go well. <laughs> hey, brother, I, I, I tip my hat to you. He, he's a little he's a little stronger, a little tougher than I was given credit for. So, you know, I, I'm sure Greg will appreciate that. Well, and now I guess you have, at least for those that write these sort of scripts, a little bit of a comeback story to tell now Absolutely. with Rob, which might actually bring some dimension into his person persona with the with the fan base. So maybe there's something there. But it is worth noting if you if you if you are one to drill into the abyss that can be the let's run.com message boards, if you go to their thread on this topic. There's a lot of people who post who have posted on there with this issue and kind of their experiences with it, including at least one person who had the surgery from Sexena himself. And this person said, 
you know, just as an example, I had issues with the affected, you know, the, the side where I had surgery for up to 10 months after the surgery, yes. but since then, no problem. So some are saying it's 10 to 12 months to kind of get through the rehab and kind of feel st- full strength again, but that many were able to get to full strength after that. So we'll see, but this may definitely affect his full 2019 in some capacity. Which means it's 2020. Right. Hopefully, potentially, but at least hopefully he'll be full strength by 2020 trials and then hopefully fully back by the Olympics. His Achilles will be fully ready. But you and I know, Chris, um, again, though, you know, you made this point and I didn't reiterate it. And I should at this point. He does have every single page will be turned to get Galen Rupp ready. And as you said, it may be the thing that sort of lights a fire in him and sparks him. And because we need this is in all great stories, there's the drop and the lower and the, and the come down and then the build back up. And here we go. I mean, look, you know, he's going to obviously be worried about his aerobic system during this time. I, it wouldn't put, I wouldn't put it past Salazar and Rupp to have him on a hand bike of some sort, just doing like, low intent you know low uh resistance high cadence hand bike work to get some kind of aerobic work in while he can't move his his foot so you never know they'll they'll they will leave no stone unturned in terms of making sure he doesn't miss a beat from a from a aerobic system development standpoint so we'll see but it is big news and definitely affects rub at a minimum for the spring and we'll see after that. Second current event to talk about will be our discussion of of Mr. Bekele's Amsterdam Marathon. The Amsterdam Marathon just went off this past weekend. It was one in a course record on the men's side of 204.06 by Lawrence Chirono. So really, really fast up front. And Canesia Bekele... A runner we've labeled in the conversation with the greatest of all time distance runners of all this of the full spectrum was in the race, stayed with the leaders through halfway, but then started to fade. Was still on pace for a 207 through 40k, and then promptly just walked off the course with 2k to go, just over a mile to go, and then walked straight back to his hotel room with his agent basically jumping off a motorbike he'd been riding on course to follow him to, to tend to Bikaley as he walked back to his hotel. Absolutely insane that he didn't finish it. And then, of course, Josh Hermans, who after Berlin, where he DNF'd against Kipchoge last year, ripped Bikaley a new one for not being focused enough and doing the right work, did the same thing again after this one, basically saying... He's not willing to do the work. I guess he only does, he said for this cycle up to Amsterdam, he only had seven weeks of focused training. And so anyway, he was again calling Bekele out for not putting in the work, not focusing like he needs to. What's going on here? Is this is it time for Bekele just to give up? Is he done? You know, let's go let's let's talk about Josh Hermans first, okay? Because I already went on this diatribe before. I'll address McKaylee in a second. But, okay. dude, 
Who the f- this is the great this is the most well-renowned agent in the world, a former top athlete and marathon runner himself. And he is calling out one of his stars. And maybe he knows this works, right? But dude, you don't call your athlete weak. You don't call him dyslexic. He called him dyslexic, that he had an inability to plan. He says it's really hard with him. He's running around in his car doing work. Every area of his life is chaotic. And I'm like, okay, can we deal with those issues before the race starts? (laughs) Could we possibly do something financially or put him in a position where he is limited in his options? Or are you just going to sit here after the race is over and fucking lambast the guy? I mean, obviously he has a bit of a problem, right? And yeah, he calls him, he says he isn't a child. He has to take responsibility. Well, guess what, Josh? How about you take some fucking responsibility too, you weak ass fucking (laughs) punk? It makes me so mad. Like, what right does he have to do this to his athlete unless this is the way that he gets him motivated? But it didn't really work. It hasn't worked so far, Chris. Now, as everybody knows, I cannot backpedal too much from my Bekele love. And I do think if Bekele did get some of these basic issues addressed and maybe if somebody put him in a Kipchoge kind of mode and said, why don't you lay in bed? Why don't you clean toilets? Why don't we do something else? I'm telling you right now, Bekele can run with Kipchoge stride for stride. And he's the only guy in the world. Maybe Mo Farah can, but Bekele is the only one, the only one at 2020 who can run with Kipchoge. And I, for one, would love to see it. I still would pick Kipchoge in that fight, but I would love to see these two, the two greatest of all times at the 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo, going toe-to-toe and throwing fucking haymakers. And maybe Joss Hermans has a plan that this is going to help him, but I don't think it's going to. And I think there's a much better way to approach this. Now, Bekele himself, yeah, okay. He's 36 years old, man. I mean, it's it's put up or shut up time. Somebody stole your crown, and what are you going to do? You're going to go take it back. You've got to go take it back. That's the question, Chris. Will Kip, Will Bekele figure it out, recognize Kipchoge as the current world reigner, and do something about it and change his lifestyle and change his approach? We shall see. Well, in my response, first, I did want to address your diatribe of Josh Herman's. I've got additional issues with Josh Herman's. I agree with you. I don't think he should be calling out his athlete publicly especially pitting him against Kipchoge. And maybe that's part of the game he's playing to try to continue to drum up some kind of rivalry between the two athletes for his benefit. But my bigger issue with Herman's is Josh Herman's was the elite athlete coordinator for this race. Now, if that's not a conflict of interest, I don't know what is. I didn't know that. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. So he had... So he's the elite athlete coordinator. He's bringing Bekele into this race, theoretically negotiating whatever contract is supposed to be had between Bekele and the race. And and he knows Bekele's not ready to toe the line in true form. And so there, there to me is a major conflict of interest there that I have issues with. And if he is the coordinator and if he knew Bekele wasn't ready to roll, he should have said, no, I'm not putting you on that starting line. But Absolutely. 
especially if he's going to then follow up with this kind of diatribe. So that's my I'm bigger sure, issue I with Herman. I think it's bullshit. He talked because his yeah. injury is bullshit. He stepped on a rock and then it plays up and oh, down. Yeah. His body. You know, come on. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, all of that. I don't believe a single word of it. The, the guy, you, or, like, you, you can't train for a marathon in seven weeks. <laughs> Ultimately. Or that he was training for a marathon in seven weeks. And then what do you expect, but to have this kind of problem if you stepped on a rock, right? Come yeah, on. Cause you're not ready. How many so, rocks have you stepped on? Thousands. And how many times has he been over it? So, and then as a, right, right. And then as it relates to Vikaly himself, it's, it's bullshit either. And I get it. Part of it is uh, these, it's the marathon game. I mean, these guys are able to still get paydays and I don't know how his is split up in this case. You know, does he, I mean, I'm sure he got paid just for showing up. I'm sure he lost money because he didn't finish, but he's still getting paid at some level for being there. I'm sure. Who's the elite so, coordinator? Who's the elite right, coordinator? Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, so major issues with that conflict of interest, but but that's and that's a problem that marathons themselves have to sort out. Is how do you get these guys or or ladies to the starting line ready when? maybe they're a little bit past their big results. And Bikaley clearly is. I mean, he hasn't had a big result since early, I think, 2017. So now we're 18 months past that. Lots of DNFs. And, you know, as we know, once you start DNFing, it just becomes easier and easier. And I don't want to see him go the way of Dennis Cometo, who continues to show up on starting lines and continues to DNF. Although his his starting lines are getting less and less prestigious. So if you're Bikaley, you know, it's time to retire if that's what effectively you've done. If you're not training full-time, if you're not really committed, it's time to retire. It's, it's time to let the sport send you off in all of your glory. Because, yeah, he's had a major, an amazing storied career. And no, he hasn't had the marathon career that we all expected he could have had, but clearly that's because he hasn't really focused on it like he should. And if he's not going to focus oh, no. on it, then, oh, no. then yeah, then move on. Oh, no. then he, move- he ran into Ilian Kipchoge. <laughs> <laughs> he would have had a storied career, but he had to keep pressing and pushing. Um, there's something that happened in this interview, Chris, and maybe we can link to that. There's a specific let's run a thread about that, not thread, but a, a, a page about this interview with Hermans and the Dutch uh, or the, the Dutch media and very at the buried at the very bottom. Joss says another thing. I hadn't seen it till just re- just now, Chris. And he says something is, you know, it's just when you see someone slide away with amazing talent, of course you see him slip away and you see people slip away in sports and art and business it's usually those with a little less talent, but with more drive who make it to the top. Is that a slight <laughs> to Ilya Kipchoge? Did he just throw his other athlete under the bus? Or is this a master manipulator <laughs> who is always looking for opportunities to poke little stabs at his athletes to get them motivated? Yeah. <laughs> wow. 
He's like, okay, Kipchoge, you're not as you're not the talent that Bikaley is, but you want it more. But anyway, but Bikaley, come on. It's like it's time to hang him up. If you're not gonna show up present and correct, if you're not gonna really contend, if you're gonna contest consistently DNF, it's time to hang up the marathon racers at this point. Leave the sport. Let us send you off with whatever accolades you deserve and and move on. I don't know that we're going to get that opportunity from McKaylee. There will be other races that are willing to pay him. Josh Herman's as the elite coordinator or not, because he is a big name. He is a big draw and people will continue to speculate as to whether or not he can pull off a result that might challenge Kipchoge because we know he has the talent to. So we will see if this sad story continues or if we actually, if McKaylee actually gets to have the send off he deserves. Absolutely. Now, last well, thing on we current. More time on that than we wanted to, didn't we, Chris? No, sorry. sorry. It's it's my fault. It's sad. <laughs> it's sad as a fan. It's it's sad as a fan when you see that. I mean, we see this across every sport where somebody hangs yes, on do. a little too long, and it starts to get depressing watching them because they're a shell of their former former self. So this is that case right now, and it's sad. Now, last thing quickly, Toronto Marathon went off this weekend. We had previewed that one or at least talked about it a little bit because of Jake Robertson and the fact that he was going to be in that field going for a a big result to try to earn a spot in one of these big majors and ultimately for Jake it didn't happen he ran 209.52 faded away from the leaders the the winner was Benson Cabruto who won in 207 Jake did not have the day that he expected or the day really that his prep races indicated might have for him. And so it's got to be disappointing. He was ultimately passed in the final K or 2K by Cam Levins, the Canadian who was able to break the the 43-year-old Canadian record of 210.09 and become the first Canadian under 210 to earn a 43000 Canadian dollar bonus. But We'll start with Jake. Not what we expected from him. I think you and I both were bullish that he might be able to put together potentially a victory here and show the world that he deserved to be at, at the front of a major marathon. What do you think happened? I would love to see his training log, Chris. I'm pretty sure this guy overcooked it. Yep. It, that's, that's a sign of late race Either he stepped on a rock a la Bekele, right? <laughs> well, we know <laughs> he I just don't, work. I don't see that with him. You know what I mean? So it's like I just think that probably he did the work and did too much work. I mean, this these, these brothers, as they're known for just burying themselves. And he definitely called his shot on this one too, Chris. Um, we know that. He never stepped away from expecting a win expecting to run the fastest, expecting to put himself in a conversation as a medalist at 2020. That was, those were the kinds of words we heard prior to this race. Would you, would you agree? Oh yeah. So to me, because of that, I'm like, he probably, this is the case of not having a coach. I don't know if he has a coach or not, but I would love to see his training log from the last six weeks out. Cause I bet he cooked it just a little too hot. And man, in the marathon, there is no, like, 
it, there, that kind of fade that happened late and his inability to respond late, um, knowing this guy's personality, I, I am, I'm almost positive that this is uh, a, a training error, Chris, unless there was other, something else like he got sick prior to it um, that he didn't, and he didn't want to complain about that or that there was some significant drama in his life um, with a relationship, you know, familial or, you know, uh, or romantic or whatever. There's a lot of different reasons why an athlete who's prepared in so many other areas might have a problem over the last three weeks of their prep. Um, We've all been in this case and we should also talk about that as a, as a real thing, right? Those life intrudes upon us sometimes, but Jake Robertson, he, he just strikes me as a guy who does not allow that to come into his life. So my argument, so my thought is, I think he overcooked it. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, even if we look at that half marathon result that he had, that he had previously in this cycle, it was really, really impressive, which, you know, is always a potentially dangerous sign that, you're being a little too aggressive early and not leaving enough for actually for race day. And as you said, the way he faded, it just looked like perhaps somebody who had trained a little bit too hard because he was so intent on having a big result here and proving to the world that he deserved to be invited and paid to appear at the front of a major marathon. So it's too bad, but you know, it happens, you know, Jake is a guy, at least from my observations and, seeing him interviewed who, you know, is, is eager and hungry and will bounce back from something like this and figure it out because I know he'll take it probably harder on himself than, you know, anything he would get from the outside. So, so we'll see it's, it didn't happen here, but I have no doubt that he'll be back and he'll put those pieces together at some point. So we'll be, we'll be watching, but then we've got to talk about Cam Levins who did seem to put it together very well. You know, he's an athlete that many were bullish on as he came out of college out of Southern Utah. He was a guy who did crazy, crazy big miles in college. Some it's, it's all a little bit mythology, but some would say he ran 150 miles a week in college, didn't take down weeks, did crazy, crazy miles. And then when he turned pro started with the, the Oregon project was supposed to be a kid who could work with Rupp and help hopefully push him at the marathon at some point. Didn't really pan out there, ultimately moved back to working with his college coach. I know now his he's living in Canada, working sort of indirectly with his college coach, who's still at Southern Utah, but was able to put the pieces together for this, his first marathon, his debut, run 209, get the Canadian record. He ran pretty even splits. 20 or sorry 104 and change on each half finished pretty strong considering that he ended up pretty much in no man's land from 30k to the finish but running by himself having to close it out alone and ultimately passed Jake Robertson at the end so got a bonus I mean really big day for him big day for Canada to have their first sub 210 marathoner what do you make of his result you know, first of all, kudos to him because he hasn't given up, you know, and a guy who's willing to run 150 miles a week in Southern Utah is somebody who 
obviously has a long-term vision about who he wants to be. And he has an aim that is so long-term that he would work through anything. And, you know, he got, he got accepted by the greatest, supposedly the greatest coach in the world. But sometimes even the greatest coach of the world wants to make changes to an athlete, Chris, that the athlete is not open to. And I think that it's probably likely what happened here. I'm sure that Cam had so much success running the kind of mileage and the kind of work that he did that I'm sure the first thing Alberto did was try to change things up. And it may be that this is just the way Cam has to roll, you know? And so it's, it's not a, it's not an, it's not a, an analysis of what happened at the Oregon project as much as it is a statement to all of our listeners, no matter what happens to you, keep your goals your own and, and make them make sure that you know what you want and don't let anything stop you from getting what you want. Correct. So, you know, in a lot of ways, that's, that's, um, what I see here is somebody who then said, yeah, but I still want to be good. I still want to be great. All those 150 mile weeks had to be worth something. Um, I will say this though, kudos on whoever wrote his race strategy, Yeah, because this is a dude who loves to go out fast. I mean, all through college, he was, you know, 200 meters ahead of the field. I mean, so there was a serious adjustment in race strategy from what Cam is usually used to. Now, I haven't paid attention to his race results for the last five years as much, except to see that he had not really met the kind of expectations that everybody had for him. So maybe he had already learned that lesson before with Alberto or in some other place, but that kind of a slight negative split and adjusting in that way and managing it in that way. Awesome. I mean, and, and honestly, Chris, watch out for this guy. I mean, in a race like what Tokyo is going to be at the Olympics, we're not going to have pacers. We're going to have very hot weather conditions and athletes with this kind of mental tenacity, long-term approach and showing up at just the right time. These are, these are these are good signs for Cam, and it's something that we should all be paying close attention to this result and looking at it, looking forward at it when we get into those kinds of circumstances that it will be everything happening on one day. And so many of the other athletes in that race will be happy about being there. And a guy like Cam is probably somebody who's not going to be just happy about being there. Yeah. You know? So Yeah, there were a couple of things in his I read I watched his pre-race interview before Toronto and Cam mentioned he didn't, he didn't make any direct Oregon project comments that I saw, but he mentioned something about how he likes to train, which is not really by the watch. He likes to run by feel, use sort of an effort based approach to training. So I just had this feeling that perhaps with Oregon, with the Oregon project, it got a little too scientific, a little too specific maybe Alberto would try to try to back him down from his big miles so that he could get a little bit more quality in. And so, you know, I could just see those elements that really rigorous, no detail left unaccounted for approach that Salazar brings to the table, perhaps rubbing an athlete like Cam who kind of likes to roll with the flow, put in the miles, but not necessarily track every single pace, every single mile could rub him the wrong way and just not be a style that would work for him. So kudos to him for making the shift back to his, to the world, you know, where, where he can have success, a 209, basically running by yourself at Toronto. 
is no joke. I mean, no American besides Rupp has broken 210 this year. So this is legit. And I think bodes well for Cam to at some point have a potential to run a 206, 205 to go compete with the likes of, of Rupp and, and Farah and so forth. So we shall see. We've also got to mention on the women's side, the Canadian national champion, it's this girl, Kenzie Middleton. I watched part of the race and saw her pull away from the defending champion, Leslie Sexton. She went on to run 232 in her marathon debut. And that's a big deal for a Canadian female. You know, that's, you know, we have at least one Canadian female in our world who, you know, who as a result follows, you know, the women on, on the Canadian side, especially for the marathon and, and I would say that side certainly hasn't been very deep in recent history. And so it's good to see a debutante run a low 230 race, get the win and the associated bonuses in Toronto here. And you never know, but it's a sign that, that there's some momentum building on the Canadian side for both men and women, which is cool to see. Yeah, it is. I, I don't know. I'm not familiar with her. Is that her maiden name? I don't. I don't I know. I wonder. Anyway. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, 232 is legit for a yeah. first timer, yeah. for sure, as you said. Um, and again, it's just continuing to show that the Northern Hemisphere, I mean, Canada is basically <laughs> Americans, right? So it's like, it's just the kind of depth we're seeing is only going to play out over a long term that in the next three to five years, I think we're going to continue to see more and more greatness. Now, one thing I want to go back just for a second, Chris, back to cam there for a sec and just make sure that our listeners understand that what's going to happen in 2020 means that every single one of these people have a chance. So as much as Chris and I talk about these, these super elites like Kipchoge and then at, a, at the next level, the um, Moferas and maybe the Bekele's and the Kipsangs and those other folks. The one race where these athletes have a chance to make a significant impact is at a hot, hot conditioned, warmed weather, national, world or Olympic championship kind of venue and so why we're bringing your attention to a Cam Levins is that we truly believe that there is an opportunity at a race like that to steal something because every single Olympic Games, other than the one that Kipchoge just won, so many of them have had the, the podium upset or adjusted by a quote-unquote no-name or lesser expected, not expected to be performer showing up in those kinds of conditions. So... Um, I think it's really important to bring that to our listeners' attention as we start to continue to ratchet up these conversations about what's going to happen at the Olympic Games that we're so excited about coming up in 2020 in Tokyo. Yeah. Plus, you know, if you're going to be a fan, you got to be a fan of all, in a sense. So learn, learn all the little stories. It's fun. All right, so now we'll talk New York. First, before we jump into talking about a New York race plan, and by the way, for those that aren't racing New York, I still think this is a good listen or will be a good listen because you never know when you might race New York. Plus, also, I think it's helpful 
for races like New York that have some challenging terrain at spots to help you think about how to translate what we're saying about this race into a race that might be similar to a race that you're doing. So there are definitely lessons and takeaways, I think, to pull from this to apply to wherever you might be racing. And of course, if you end up at New York someday, you'll have this to go check back on. But first, I wanted to give a little bit of history on New York. Obviously, it's one of the marathon majors and a big, big major here in the U.S., along with Boston and Chicago. It's, in some ways, it's turning 49 years this, 49 years old this year, but it'll actually be the 48th running of the New York City Marathon. We've had a race every year since 1970 but then obviously we had the one year in 2012 where the race didn't happen because of hurricane sandy so you had it canceled once in the 49 potential years of the running so this will be the 48th running in the year 49 for new york and so i wonder i wonder what that means about how they'll treat the 50th anniversary will it be the 50th anniversary by year or by running we'll see coming but this will be the 48th running obviously it has a storied history that is well documented and well discussed incidentally it started with a race in this in 1970 a men's only race the women's race joined in 1972 a couple years later as all of that was happening with new york and boston about the ability for for women to toe the line at these races or cover more than two miles with the silly, the silly thoughts that doctors had at the, at the time about the effective distance running on women's bodies. But the initial years, until from 1970 to 1975, were all run as loops of Central Park. So you just had multiple loops of Central Park. It wasn't until 1976 when the race actually shifted to a five-borough affair starting in Staten Island and covering all five boroughs on the way to Central Park. And so we've had some version of the more modern course now since 76. Of course, we've got a storied list of winners. And the first 12 years of the race were actually all won by Americans, with Bill Rogers getting four in a row from 76 to 79. Alberto Salazar winning three in a row from 80 to 82. All that on the men's side. And then on the women's side, Catherine Switzer of Boston Bandit fame actually won the race in 1974 as Americans took the first six of them on the women's side. But then the, the event on the women's side was taken over by the great Greta Weitz, who we've talked about as one of the goats. She won three in a row from 78 to 80 and then another five in a row from 82 to 86 and then again in 88. So Norway owned this race basically from the late 70s to through the 80s because of Greta Weitz. Of course, recently it's been dominated by the East Africans with Mary Katani winning three in a row from, from 14 to 16 before Shalane got her big win last year. And four out of the last, or sorry, five out of the last six years on the men's side have been won by East Africans course records you've got jeffrey 
Mutai has the men's course record, 205.05 from 2011. Former world record holder. Yes, former world record, world record holder from that. That was the 2011 race. And then Margaret Akeo, Kenyan athlete, she has the course record from actually 2003 running 222, which on the New York course without pacers is pretty insane. Smoking. Smoking fast. <laughs> So asterisks around that one, right? Anyway. <laughs> so then that was Margaret's second victory. She also won in 2001. And so, you know, so that's a little bit of the history is also New York is also the largest marathon in the world with 51,000 finishers. And there's actually over 90,000 applicants to get into this race through the lottery system every year. So Chris, can I put a little personal note in here? Go ahead. It's also my father's first marathon. Okay. And he ran 247 in his debut. Wow. And had the family and had the Sisson family record for uh until 2004 when his I'm um, 2000 and no, 2000 and sa- 2008 when his son myself finally broke that record. So, anyway, there may be a need for me to go back there at some point in time, but uh yeah it, that this this race is a holds a very deep place in my heart as um sort of I started running while my dad was training for this race so those two things happen in conjunction so it's a deep place for me Is that still his PR 247 Uh well yeah <laughs> it's 75 No I know I just didn't like, know if he had subsequently run faster than that no, he he ended up running into some injuries, and then he had four kids, and life <laughs> life happened. Life 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 happened. Yeah, still impressive uh, for a debut at New York. And it was the first year that they ran that they ran the uh, bridge, you know, the, the the current route. So okay, wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So, so there you go. A little bit of history on New York, obviously. We're excited about this year's race because we'll be there. We'll get to see the pre-race elite press conferences on Friday. And there are big fields to talk about. But we're going to save that full preview show about what's going to go on from an elite standpoint for our preview show, which we'll film or record next Friday and release next Friday as we'll be in New York. But... Let's talk about this for for the for the average for the everyday man and or woman who's going to be doing New York, what they can do to optimize their result on race day, and obviously, by the way, a lot of people do New York just for fun. It's, it's probably the best way to tour New York is via the New York City Marathon, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with treating it that way, treating it as a a fun tour of the city. Soaking in every moment, reading every sign, high-fiving everybody, maybe drinking beer that people are passing out along the course. There's absolutely nothing wrong with experiencing the New York City Marathon that way. And many might argue that's the best way to experience it with 51 other, 51,000 other finishers out there enjoying it as well. But in this case, we'll talk about what to do if you want to optimize your New York strategy. And I want to start with pre-race preparation because like Boston this one is unique in terms of the logistics to get to the start line and the associated weight that you have once you get there and so I want to make sure that people are prepared for 
for dealing with that. I know as an athlete myself, I struggle significantly with these later start races, especially races like New York and Boston that have challenging logistics to get to the start line and to wait for the actual gun to go off. I just get anxious and burn a lot of nervous energy unnecessarily before the actual gun goes off so that I've had challenges having my best day in races like this, but there are better ways to manage it than others. And it starts with having a good plan. Now, in the case of New York, you've got the opportunity to either take the ferry or take a bus out to the start line. And by this point, you'll have chosen your lot as it relates to those options. But there's certainly ways to think about and manage those two options. And I think it starts with getting there early. (laughs) Whatever ferry time you've chosen or whatever bus time is, you know, is is for you getting there. Personally, I recommend my, to my athletes to get there 25 to 30 minutes before they're supposed to, to leave either on the bus or the ferry so that they can queue up, have time, give extra time in case your Uber ride or your, your public transportation is off or something's not right or some chaos happens. You forget something at the hotel and have to go back for it. Just give yourself plenty of time to ideally get, ideally get there early, which leaves room for margin for error in case something chaotic happens getting there, but also gives you the ability to get there, get settled in, not be rushing. Because what happens with these situations, and I think it's especially bad for those that are taking the ferry, is you have people that miss their scheduled ferry time. And so they start to queue up and stack up with the later ferry times which causes some absolute chaos in that terminal. And so you just want to have the ability to kind of in a mellow way without, without being too anxious, deal with all of that. So to me, that's, that's tip number one on this, Steve, anything to add there? Um, No, just to say that you need to, as Chris stated, races are lost here. Yeah experiences are negatively impacted by not having an expectation. Number one, that it's a complete, it's, it's like a walk down desolation row. I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no rhyme or reason for the way that they set things up. It seems like an absolute chaotic and crazy situation. No matter which option you chose, neither of them are good options. And by the way, you'll stand on that bridge for hours They'll have people telling you you can't take urinate and that it's, if it's freezing cold, it's going to be incredibly difficult. You just need to come into that initial, before the gun goes off, that initial process saying, you are not the master of your domain. You're not the captain of your ship. You are going to have to deal with the protocols and the processes that they have in place at, at New York and be happy that you're a part of the celebration and the pageantry that happens. That doesn't matter even whether you're going out and having fun or whether you're going out and doubling down and trying to get the best result you can with a command performance, it doesn't matter. You need to be chill, chill, chill in from the time you wake up until the time the gun goes off. And probably at probably likely at least until the, you know, two mile point after you've come over the Verrazano, but Verrazano narrows bridge and have dropped onto 92nd street, it's all going to be a shit show. It's all going to be crazy and psycho and you just need to deal, okay? And recognize 
hey, you're a part of something that happens very infrequently, happens one time a, one time a year. It's only happened 50 to- 48 times in the history. And here you are as a part of it. Relax, chill out, and enjoy no matter what your, what your mental focus is or what your expectation for result is. Yeah, and that's where I think visualization can play a real role. And thinking through as you visualize these scenarios where like a chaotic ferry terminal where just visualize people cutting in front of you, people pressing against you, chaos of just all that energy. And and you can actually YouTube the New York Marathon Ferry experience. There are videos out there to go watch. If you haven't experienced it, go watch that because you'll see some of that chaos play out. People have posted from cell phone videos on YouTube. And so it'll give you an opportunity to have something in your head that you can then visualize and visualize your mental strategy because your mental game starts there where you can visualize the mental strategies to kind of stay in your zone. Look, ultimately, you're all going to get to the start and there's going to be people that are anxious and stressed and causing chaos all around you. And so if you just find and think about ways for you to kind of help you mellow out, let other people just cut in front of you, just let them go. If they're stressed and and moving and bumping up against you, just let them go. You're going to get there. So relax, let it all play out, but think through some mental strategies that can help you do that. Now, before we get too far along, I did also want to talk a little bit about nutrition as it relates to this kind of later start. It's always difficult to manage it. The only marathon I've ever bonked in was the Boston Marathon where we had a late start. And I had a decent sized breakfast before I got on the bus to Hopkinton and then didn't eat anything else until until I was having, having my, <laughs> my in-race nutrition which wasn't enough. And so I just completely just didn't have enough because of that gap between about, I think it was 5.30 or 6 a.m. when I had breakfast and 10 a.m. when the race starts. So so I highly recommend you have a normal breakfast before you head to your mode of transportation. And you know, don't be shy with it. You've got plenty of time for that to digest. And then bring a snack with you of some sort that you know will be easy on your stomach, that will be easy to digest. Personally, for me, now I've learned to bring, I bring dry cereal. I mean, it's not, it's not sexy and there's no milk, but you know, for me, I'll just be, have Ziploc bag full of dry cereal that I can just kind of munch on and I'll start pretty much from the time I get onto my mode of transportation till probably about 30 minutes before the gun would go off, just graze, graze, just a little bit here and there. It gives you something to do. Also kind of keeps keeps stuff flowing in. It's coming in small chunks, so it's easy to digest. And that may be for you something besides dry cereal. It could be a bagel that you're ripping pieces off of. could be something else. But I highly recommend you have something to graze on after your breakfast to get you charged and ready for your in-run nutrition. And same goes for hydration. You know, I recommend carrying some sort of bottle with elect- that has electrolytes in it. For me, that might be a smart water or scratch or noon that I have in like a one liter bottle that I'm carrying with me to just not, not guzzle, not even necessarily finish all of it, but just kind of sip on it to keep that hydration flowing while I'm waiting. Any other, t- 
Any other tips there? Yeah, I agree, Chris. There's nothing. There's nothing. I mean, you know, the only thing I have to say about this is that that's not something that everybody's used to. So none of this is going to be something you're used to. And I'm, I guess I'm just repeating the same thing. But even what Chris just described about how you choose to deal with the time that you have that you're standing there, um, which is challenging and problematic, and also dealing with what do you do with that time when you're standing there, it all plays into that. One of the biggest challenges of the New York City Marathon is what happens before the gun goes off. So have a plan. Expect that plan to not go as you have scripted and be okay with it. And if you work that visualization game and you work that play in that regard, I think you'll be you'll be pleasantly surprised that you stay calm, cool, and collected while the while all those around you are freaking out. Yeah, and speaking of that, I mean, there's a couple other things I tell people to think about pre-run, which is one, bring something to do. You know, and maybe there are those among you that like to, that are extroverted, that want to find a friend to talk to you. And look, this is a great race to do that because you have such a, a hodgepodge of people from all countries, backgrounds. I mean, New York is probably the most diverse marathon in the world in terms of backgrounds. And you're going to find, you're going to run into people from other countries that have just cool and interesting stories. So if you're an extrovert and that gives you energy, by all means, find a friend, find some interesting folks and talk to them. If you're not, if you that if you think that's going to burn energy or distract you or distract you in a negative way, bring some reading material. You know, I highly recommend a, a magazine, a newspaper, a paperback that you're willing to discard, something that allows you to kind of go to a another place for a little bit and distract while passing the time. And so, bring something easy like that to distract yourself. Then, of course. We also have to talk about layers and clothing. As I look at the forecast now for next Sunday in New York, it's forecasting currently an overnight low of 50, a high of 57 on Sunday with 40% chance of showers that morning during the race. So it could be drizzly, could be wet. It can tend to be windy over there on Staten Island close to that bridge. And so you do need to think about how you're going to layer up at least until you get to the start itself. The, you know, in, a, in weather like that, personally for me, I'm probably going short singlet and gloves to start gloves that I w- wouldn't have a, a problem discarding or not wearing if I chose, but you're probably not going to need more than that for the race itself, but you're obviously going to want some warm clothes to stay warm while you're sitting there in the conditions and potentially a poncho or trash bag to throw over you to try to stay as dry as you can. Now we're not talking about Boston gale force wind and cold conditions. So that's good, but you do want to obviously take into account that you're going to be out in the elements for a while and you're going to want to, you're going to want the appropriate clothing to discard before you get to the start to deal with those things. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, something else that I want to talk about, especially for those that haven't run New York, obviously you're going to get, there's, there's a wave start with different corrals and you've got different colored bibs, which affect the different starting elements. Cause you've got, I think both halves of the bridge are used 
on the upper half of the bridge and then one half of the bridge on the lower side is used. And so, and then you have you know, different colored bibs depending on where you're going to be. And so you know, there's a whole sorting system to get people going and you actually cover different, slightly different streets as you go through the first part of the course. So I would just highly encourage you, you have a, a pretty good visual or, or study a good visual of the start village, the start corrals, where you're going to need to queue up. It's like, take a map with you if you have to, but study that to know at least directionally where you need to be going. Because I think this is one where it's easy to end up in the wrong spot or get confused and lost and frustrated because you can't find your corral or whatever it may be, or you're not sure where to go, not sure where the porta putties are, whatever that may, may be. And so just do a little due diligence, do your homework and find out exactly where you need to be and get a visual of that start line so you don't end up in the wrong spot. All right. Anything else pre, pre-race? No, Chris. I mean, I think that, except that, that I do think it's important that our athletes, we talk about this at Boston. We talked about it repeatedly at Boston and it also just bears being in mind at the start of this race, where you position yourself for the first 15 miles or so is where you're going to end up. Like you are not going to be able to run across the double yellow line anytime before 10 miles, right? I mean, you are just going to be sandwiched and and just packed up and there's not a lot of room to roam. So it's really important where you put yourself and position yourself and that you not freak out and start running all over the course to try to find any gap and any opening that you might be able to find to get yourself open room for running. Appropriately position yourself if anything, position yourself perhaps a little bit further up in the field than further back. You can always slow down. It's very hard to pick up. Now, while I say that, I also say, hey, that doesn't mean that you can just roll with the people you ran with if you've moved further up. I mean, you still have to have your head on your shoulders and follow the basic racing strategy that we always recommend, which is negative splitting or even splitting at at the most. So, But just know that with a race of this kind of density – it's very difficult to move around bodies and just keep that in mind as you start lining yourself up on the starting line. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And it's a good segue into our discussion of the actual race itself. This one, and you can get more granular than this, but for the purposes of this discussion, we, we're going to break it into four sections to think about in terms of your race planning. Sort of miles one through three, the start, and then four to about 15, 16 to 22, and then 23 to the finish. So we'll kind of chunk it up that way. Those first three miles, it's all about getting out smoothly and comfortably. Now, it's interesting that your biggest climb on the course is right there at the beginning, Verrazano Narrow Bridge, as you go up and over from Staten Island into Brooklyn. There you climb basically 150 feet over the first three quarters of a mile as you go up that bridge and then crest at the top and then go back down essentially 150 feet over the next three quarters of a mile as you go over that big bridge. And so you just have to, as you prepare for it, just visualize, especially if you haven't done it before, just visualize you're going to have three decks of that bridge 
absolutely covered in runners with different blue and green and orange bib numbers. You're going to have all the normal chaos of a marathon start line, but this time times 10 or 20 because this is New York and it's 51,000 people. You're going to have the dramatic views of the New York Harbor to your left and all of the aura that that provides. And you're in New York, the biggest marathon in the world. So if there's not a few reasons to get a little bit hyped there, then by the time you get there, there'll be that hype will be there in spades. So all of your adrenaline will be pumping. And so you're going to think that all you're going to think you're running slower than you are. And while you do gain 150 feet over that first three quarters of a mile, which is a pretty significant climb, I don't think you're going to notice it that much at that stage. But it is important that you start conservatively. And as you said, Steve, sort of maybe start a little bit further in the crowd than you might think you need to be and just let people pass you. It's like I was stressing this to one of my athletes who's doing New York yesterday. If you're not being passed at the beginning of this race, you're probably going too fast. Because all of those people are going to be burning all of that adrenaline with all of that chaos and energy and hype. And they're going to be flying up that hill, burning energy that they're going to need by the time they get to Central Park. And so start slow. And I say this every year before Austin, which has a climb at the beginning. Start slow and then slow down some more. Like literally you should get out the gate like you're running a long run on the weekend that comfortably. And start smooth, start start in control. I recommend starting that first mile about 30 to 40 seconds plus or minus slower than your target pace up that first hill. And then the first three miles, kind of working down to your target pace from there, knowing that once you crest that hill and hit that downhill on the backside of the bridge, you're not going to have to change gears to progress. You keep that same rhythm up and over. The gravity is going to do its thing. and You'll naturally kind of come down off that first mile pace and then get closer to your marathon target pace near the end of that second mile and then carry that through into the third mile. That's typically what I recommend. But the key is really less about feeling that out and more about just trusting that if you start it, like it's a long run, like a casual long run, let the adrenaline carry you faster than that. You'll probably end up in the right spot. And if you end up slow, celebrate it and just work down from there. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, I like to always say these early miles, especially on this course is check yourself before you wreck yourself, you know, because that's absolutely what needs to happen here. Um, it's so easy. This is the quintessential, this and Boston are the quintessential get sucked into stupid shit races that you can possibly imagine. They're just, it's just so much energy. Um, check yourself. As you said, you don't want to overly correct. It's proper positioning early on and then checking yourself and ensuring that you're not being silly and that you're not doing in this first three miles something that you might be regretful of later on. Yeah. And one thing I want to reiterate, you said is don't weave, don't, don't bob and weave. There will be such a temptation to do that, especially if you feel like you're going too slow. You're going to have this temptation to kind of dart through little gaps in people to try to get to your pace. 
And what you're going to end up doing is burning energy that you could use later. You're also going to be in, end up working muscles you don't normally work, sort of moving laterally in ways that will, will you'll pay for later. So just don't do it. Just settle in, get behind people, let them pass you, and realize that that's going to be your best play because it will allow you to save energy later. And the other thing is I've had people tell me after New York that they ran 27.x miles because, <laughs> you know, because they were dodging and weaving the entire time. And so if you're doing that, you're also running further than you need to run, which is only going to cost you. So just don't do it. Start conservatively up and over that bridge. Don't get too aggressive on the downhill. Gradually get down to that marathon target pace by mile three or so. But if it takes you till mile four, that's okay. And then settle in. So that's section one. Once you get to section two, and I said Queens earlier, I meant Brooklyn. That's where the courses come together. Green, orange, and blue all come together in Brooklyn. And, and so from, from about four until 15, as you go through Brooklyn and then into Queens, you have you know, a section of the course there where it's really all about rhythm. One thing that's, that's true about New York is that it's not, super flat like Chicago. So you can't just dial into a pace, turn your brain off and look at your watch every mile and see the, you know, hopefully the same number or within a few seconds of the same number. You can't do that in New York. You've got some terrain. It's not too crazy from, from four until 15, but you do have some rollers. You've got, you know, a climb on fourth Avenue in Brooklyn. You've got the Pulaski bridge at, at mile 13. And so you do have some ups and downs, but they're nothing like Verrazano and Narrows Bridge. They're nothing like the Queensboro Bridge, which will come at mile 16. <laughs> and so there it's really all about finding that rhythm around MGP or marathon goal pace, as we say here, and trying to hit that rhythm consistently, but not worry so much that every single mile looks the same or has the same number after it when you're done. And so that for some runners is difficult. It's difficult to not be a slave to your watch. And yet you sort of have to let it back go and really just focus on having a consistent rhythm, relaxing, getting Zen and mellow in all the chaos and the crowds that you'll see there. And maybe not running the same pace every mile, but trying to burn the same energy every mile. Yeah. We've talked about this with our, uh, on this podcast and also with our podcast training group, rhythm and flow, rhythm and flow, right? This is exactly the kind of space from this mile three to mile 15 where that kind of approach will be very, very helpful. Um, and it's not being in a position where you worry too much about the exact pace per mile that you're running each mile through, but this is a great spot to be in 5k chunks and be thinking about your 5K to your 10K and chunking that up. And what did you get cumulatively for that? What happened between your 10K and your 15K mark? Where does that set you? Between 15 and 20K, where does that set you? And, you know, you're just before the 25K mark when you start to go over the Queensboro Bridge, Chris. But still, I mean, that's three, four, one, two, three, almost four checkpoints for that rhythm and flow where you don't have to look at the mile-by-mile mile place. You don't also have to look at your – your Gigameter's um, exact pace that you're in in the moment, 
you can actually check yourself in three, 3.1 mile checkpoints to see where you're at. And, and Chris, I, I really think this is one of the most crucial parts. And this is one of the most critical races to do that with, because it just lends itself to being in the experience and not paying attention to your watch, but still checking in with what your goals are, what your, what your expectations are for this race and being in the flow of the experience itself of running 26.2 miles before the suck starts to happen and also being in 26.2 miles within the context of um, one of the great races in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And a couple more kind of follow-on notes there. You know, when you do have the little climbs, the little rollers, don't fight them. This is not the time to burn energy on the hills. Roll and flow over them. Try to keep your effort consistent, which means your pace is going to slow down a little bit as you go up and over these climbs but you'll get it back on the backside. So just try to be smooth up and over and conserve, conserve, conserve on any of the climbs through this section. And, you know, then of course I like to have for this part of the course, really of any marathon, but especially for a race like this, where you have to just get into the flow is have a, what I call a rhythm mantra. And I've talked about this before on the podcast is some word or phrase that's going to dial you into that Zen state, that flow state that just reminds you not to be so anxious to relax. For me at times it has been simply to remind myself to smile. Sometimes it might be remind myself to read the signs from the spectators just to remind myself that, Hey, this is fun. I get to do this, enjoy it. And when you smile and you tend to, you tend to kind of relax and your whole body smiles in a sense, which will only help you get into that flow state, conserve energy, and be ready for the work to come. So when you're in this section, you know, once you hit that marathon rhythm, about mile three or four, really you can hold it consistently there through 15, but know that you're going to see some splits on your watch as you go through the miles that might be five to 10 seconds faster or slower, depending on the train in that given mile. And that's okay as long as the rhythm feels consistent. Now, our next section, section three, once you come out of Queens and head over to Manhattan, you hit the Queensboro Bridge, as you said, about the 25K point just before mile 16. You start going up and over or just after mile 15, you go up and over the Queensboro Bridge. And it's certainly not a climb like the Verrazano's Narrows Bridge, but it is something that you might notice a little bit more. And so you do have to, this is a, this is a real climb. And I think the most significant climb of the course outside of that first climb, but this one you'll certainly notice more as you climb about 75 feet over a half a mile. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's an interesting spot in the course because you go from Queens where you had people cheering for you to, and you're heading to Manhattan where you have probably one of the craziest sections of the race coming on first Avenue, but on Queensboro bridge, no spectators. So suddenly it's just you and the other runners and not a lot of sound. So it's kind of this weird spot where you go from coming out of the, the cheering sections of Queens to about to enter, maybe you can hear in the distance first Avenue crowds. And suddenly you're a little bit alone in your thoughts. Perhaps. And I think that's one, something to be ready for just mentally. It's like suddenly you're going to have 
a little less energy coming from the side of the race. But also, I think it's a good time, given where you are in the race, to kind of check in on things yourself. And for this section, I think that's important. From 16 to 22, it's important to kind of keep the rhythm of that prior section, but know that there's going to be some new obstacles. And the Queensboro Bridge is kind of the indicator that, all right, there's 10 miles to go. The race is on. I've got a second without the crowds to collect my thoughts and refocus. You know, but it's time. It's time to start not picking it up, but, you know, putting that game face on, so to speak. This mile 15 to 16, as you enter this section, is going to be a little bit slower because you're going to go up and over that bridge. And so just expect that in your plan. I think it might be 15 to 20 seconds per mile slower, maybe even a little bit more than that for some of you as you go up and over the bridge. And that's okay. Again, don't fight this climb. When you get on the backside, it's time to get back into your rhythm, but it's going to be difficult because you go from no crowds on the bridge to then suddenly the chaos of first avenue with a slight downhill there and this is where a lot of elites blow it if for those of you who have watched this race play out at the front where those elite athletes tend to get a little bit anxious on first avenue and people might make moves a little bit too early there and so as a as an athlete in the main field you just have to be a little bit careful coming off that bridge not to get too excited as you head down first avenue towards the shift over to the Bronx. And so again, slower mile over the bridge, but then find that rhythm again. At this point, it's more important to resist the urge to go too soon. You're going to have those crowds on first Avenue. It's going to tempt you, especially coming off the bridge to kind of pick it up and start maybe pressing a little bit too soon. But we're telling you in this section to just continue to be patient, put your game face on, check in on where you are, but continue to be patient. Yeah, Chris, if you're ready for your race at, at, at New York City, expect your race to start at 19 and a half. Now, you could have totally screwed it up before then, but your real racing is definitely going to start at 19 and a half as you just start to climb there. Um, you know, it's not much of a climb, but you start moving from First Avenue over the Willis Avenue Bridge. And then, you know, it's just from there on, really, it's just climb and drop and climb and drop. And each one of those on a, on an, you know, when you look at the elevation chart, looks like it's nothing, but it's something. So that's my first thought in this section is that you need to be prepared for the work that's going to be happening later on. And in this section, um, it, it, it's important that you, um, that you have already committed to the fact that suffering is going to be a part of the process. And Chris, this goes into, you know, you and I have reiterated this, this position um, over and over and over on this podcast, over and over on our training podcast, our podcast training groups uh, podcast. It's this, that so many people make the mistake in any marathon of underestimating the distance under and overestimating their fitness. And so when they get to this portion, Chris, between 15 and, you know, 22, they're in that space where they're saying to themselves, it's supposed to feel like this. My training should indicate that the experience of this race should be X, which is generally easy. And, you know, sometime in this process, Chris, somewhere, you know, you've got some downhill and you can get ahead of yourself, but you also might feel like crap. And it's not the time to throw the towel in and give up. 
It's the time to stay the course, trust your training, know that you're in a position to do the work that needs to happen. And Jesus, you better be ready to fight the fight that you're going to be asked to fight over the last three and a half, four miles of this race. So it's really crucial and important for people to go into the race knowing that they're going to have to fight. And if they're not willing to fight, um, this race is going to eat their lunch. No doubt about it. Well, yeah, especially if they're impatient here, because if you're, if you're coming over that bridge and you're thinking, I feel pretty good, you get in the midst of all that energy on first Avenue with the slight downhill there before you hit those hills that you mentioned, people can start to get ahead of themselves and burn some matches that, that will, that they'll pay for later. And so just be careful, be patient, be patient up and over the bridge, stay patient on kind of marathon pace and rhythm all the way until you get out of the Bronx as you head on to fifth Avenue in the final section, which is really where it's time to fit to finish. Right. I mean, you hit fifth Avenue about mile 22 and then you're running along the East side of the park or 22 and a half is when you're, when you actually run on the East side of the park, but you hit fifth Avenue about 22 You'll see the park off to your right, about 22 and a half. You enter the park between 23 and 24. But this is where it's time to, to go. You know, you've, you've got rollers ahead of you in the park. This finish is not easy. Certainly, if you were on an easy run, the rollers you experience there might not be a big deal. But at the end of the marathon, we know how those hills become mountains. And you've got some rollers there in the park to deal with. But if you've done your job and if you're patient, once you hit Fifth Avenue, it's time to start a progression run to the finish and to attack the climbs as they come. Prior to this section, it's all about being patient, conserve energy, let those hills slow you down naturally, find a rhythm up, up and up, up and over. But by the time you get to this last section, hitting Fifth Avenue, and certainly once you enter the park, it's go time. It's time to press time to attack the hills, time to take stock of where you are. And of course, as we've warned people before, don't burn too much too soon. Be patient in your progression, so to speak, and kind of burn a little bit of a match once and then save a few matches for the, for the later miles. But it's time to press. It's time to finish. And if you've done your job, it's hard to believe that you're going to be able to run faster than marathon pace through the park or than your average marathon pace of the park, but you can absolutely do it. If you've done your job early, if you stay patient early, and if you've left something for the end, you're going to be able to use all the energy near that finish line to propel you forward. And you have to trust that that's there. Normally I might tell runners in a marathon to potentially around 20 or 21 start to progress down to the finish in New York, I like to tell them a little bit later because of the challenges that are ahead with the rollers in the park but all, and, and, and the challenges that are prior to that. But if, if you've done your job, you can really take advantage of this last 5K. And at that point, as I say, it's time to go fishing. Absolutely, Chris. And you're in the you're in the shadow of giants here, right? I mean, you're in you're in a place of historical importance. You're on you are on the cusp of finishing one of the great marathons on the face of the planet. So many people have struggled through this section, but yet that struggle is beautiful and that struggle is necessary. It's part of this process. So many people say to me after the race is over, "Oh my goodness, those last 3 miles they were so hard, but they were so amazing." 
Um, and they are, but if you have run the raise plan, as Chris and I have indicated, you can have an, ex- you can have a really good experience of those last three miles. You can enjoy that stretch up fifth Avenue and then the turn into the park can be, um, not a, Oh my God, this sucks. But more, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I feel so good. I can't believe that this moment is going to happen the way I wanted it to. And for those people who are running their first marathon at New York City, if you're listening to this and it's your first marathon at New York City, put your hands in the air, man. This is, it is just, it's just an experience you'll probably never have again. And, um, but if you haven't run the race plan that Chris and I are outlining here, you're not, you're going to have your hands on your knees, sucking air, wishing that you would, somebody would, the sniper would shoot you from the sky take you down because you're going to be in pain because this last three miles is real and it's not a joke. So, you know, I, I, I like to say both things. It's the, it's the, the idea of the marathon winning and the marathon always wins. Well, at, at New York city, it wins more often than not even more often than usual because these last few miles, while none of those climbs are more than 50 feet at a time, 25 feet at a time, they drop and they climb and they drop and they climb over and over relentlessly. And it, it makes it feel like they're 250 foot climbs, you know? So just keep in mind that you want to have saved a little bit in reserve for these last three miles. Um, and if those of you who are running this race for fun and enjoying it, you know, I would call this race a 23 mile easy run with a 5k finish. And if you approach it that way, you'll probably have a really good race. Yeah. And as, as we say, you know, general tactics, remember, of course, go fishing at this point in the race, look for those singlets that stick out in front of you and go chase them down. Of course, put your mantras to work, have what I like to call a fight mantra for the end of the race that helps you dissociate from the pain and really focus on finishing hard. Also just soak it all in and enjoy it. As you said, Steve, this is historic historic hallowed marathon ground that you're running on just like you run on at Boston and the greats even in this even on the day itself will like Shalane herself will be will be trotting the same terrain that you're that you're running just a little bit ahead of you and so to think about where you sit in the pantheon of history at New York and within within the historic nature of whatever happens at the front on this day. It's just cool to reflect on that and to use that as a motivation to get you to the finish line. Another little tactical thing I'll mention is because those you do have some rollers as you get into the park, sometimes, especially if you know, you've, you've done your job conserving energy early on, you can use the downhills coming off you know, a roller to, to really find a new gear potentially and or at least change up your rhythm a little bit so that those tired muscles that have been working the same way and for a lot of the race can have a little bit of a break. And so, yeah, it's going to be hard. Your legs are going to hurt, but just use the terrain to your advantage to the extent that you can really press up and over those downhills and let gravity help you help propel you to the finish line. Sometimes it allows you to find a new gear that helps push you into new into a new zone in addition to, of course, chasing after those ahead of you. Once you get to the park, you also have some interesting curves. You know, most of the most of the turns prior to the park are pretty grid-like. You know, you've got long straightaways in New York and then some kind of sharp turns where obviously you'll have to, you know, kind of go around them. But in the park, you end up with some, 
kind of curvy. The streets are a little more curvy. And so just pay attention to, to the tangents to the extent that you can, depending on the crowds around you so that you're not running too far as you approach that finish line. What else should we say about New York generally? So that's it. So those are the four sections. One, start smart up and over that early bridge. Find your rhythm in section two. Be patient in section three. And then close it out in section four. If you do that, we we believe if you're well prepared in training that you'll have a good race. Yeah, I agree, Chris. I mean, and and over those last few miles, you can channel Bill Rogers, Alberto Zalazar, Catherine Switzer, Shalane Flanagan. There are, you know, you're you are with and among running royalty in your experience of running that race. So get it done, podcast listeners. We'll be in New York. We'll be actually doing a live call, live race commentary from the Jackrabbit store on the Upper West Side. So if you're spectating or finishing your race, so we're actually going to be fairly close to the exit where after you finish the marathon, you come out of the park, we'll be in the UFOs recovery zone there at the Jackrabbit on the upper, upper Jackrabbit rubbing store on the Upper West Side. So come say hi if you're a spectator or after you finish, if you want to come, let us know how your race went. We'll be there live commentating the front of the race as we did in Boston and keeping track of the runners that we know at, that train with us here at Rogue and through our podcast training group. We'll be updating on their progress as well via a live call. So check out that if you're in New York. We'll, of course, also be releasing our preview show sometime on Friday, the second before the race. So look for that to drop as we give all of our predictions on the front front of the race. And Steve and I debate whether or not Shalane can repeat as champion and what might happen on the men's side. So look out for that after we we come out of the pre-race press conferences we'll we'll give you our breakdown and and our predictions about how all that played out and we've also got some other potential things in the work which we might announce via our facebook page at rogue running on facebook so keep on the lookout for that to see if there might be some shakeout run or something on a on saturday we're still in planning on some of those details to try to get some rogues together that will be in New York. So look out for that. Our preview show on Friday. And of course our live call from the Jackrabbit on the upper West side on Sunday morning itself. And with that, Steve, we will wrap it up. (laughs) So, so there you go. Thanks as always for listening. This has been episode 98 of the running rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Rogue Running. Until next time, good luck in New York, and we'll talk to you soon.